Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Good morning. How are we doing? Good. Good. It's 11 a.m. You guys should all be awake. Come on. Yeah. It's Christmas, basically. There's trees everywhere. I came, I came in to work on Wednesday, and it was whatever, and then I came on Thursday, and now it's like Santa's workshop here. So um, I already got most of my presents done for my family and my wife, so I feel like now I can just cruise, you know? And maybe you don't do presents, I don't know, or you like, don't believe in Santa or whatever, but, um, but I love December. It's a great time. Um, today, I want to talk to you. We're, we're going to continue to go through Mark, even through kind of the holidays and the whole way up till uh, Easter of next year. So today, we're talking about a really, really kind of powerful passage. Uh, and to start us off, I, wa- I want to ask you this question that I want you to kind of think through as I'm talking and speaking today. It's kind of our main uh, idea. And the question is this. It is... Um, What are some transformational events or experiences in your life that have gotten you to where you are at in your faith in Christ or your spiritual journey? Now, it doesn't mean like um, it could be one, it could be really powerful, or it could be like a season or a series of things that helped you lead to up to where you're at right now. Uh, and maybe you're new with us and, and you don't even believe in Jesus, or you've been with us for a while and you still don't believe in Jesus, and that's totally okay. But I would say that uh, if you're sitting here today, you probably have a little bit of this experience because you're here today listening uh, in church. So uh, what are those experiences? And think in your head, what are some of those powerful, I like to call them mountaintop experiences, because I think that it's fitting to say that because those experiences give us such clarity of our faith and our spiritual journey, um, and they're powerful in ways that we encounter in Jesus. And, and the crazy thing is some of those actually could be, if you look at it, a negative thing. They could be like a, a divorce or, um, or a financial struggles or some issues with your children or something like that, where it seems really negative, but when you look back, it is this mountaintop because God spoke to you in, in the midst of that suffering and the chaos, and it's become a formative moment in your faith. It's become a mountaintop experience. I want to share with you um, one of my mountaintop experiences. It's actually my, kind of my conversion story. Um, I grew up in the church. My mom was the children's director, and so I, for, for a little bit of time, and so I felt like I was at the church four or five times a week. It's kind of ridiculous. I knew all the Awana stuff, memory verses. I could sing all the songs. I still can, unfortunately, um, which is fun sometimes when I go into children's church, and I'm like, yeah, you know? Um, and uh, anyway, so but I, I got it in my hand. I didn't really get it in my heart. The idea of Jesus being a savior, I totally understood that. But Jesus being Lord over my life, I didn't really understand what that required of me. And so um, I went to college at a Christian school. And it was within about two weeks we had this event where they ordered like 100 pounds of buffalo wild wings, which is a good start. And then, uh, and this, is a, this is a college boys' dorm, mind you. And then uh, the RAs, who were like the student leaders of the dorm, they gave their testimonies. They kind of talked about how they met Jesus. And this, this event was, I came for the Buffalo Wild Wings, but I was also kind of excited to get to know some of these RAs. And I sat there and I listened to these six RAs stories and every single one was just like piercing me in the heart. Because the, their, their struggles and the reality of their faith and how they were dealing with all these different things was so um, comparative to what I was struggling with at that time. And I didn't think there was a lot of people struggling with it. They started talking about pornography. They started talking about pride. They started to talk about like career and social status and, and how they need to like um, kind of show off and, and even be a little bit two-faced around certain people. And all these things, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's me, that's me, that's me. But I looked at them and I was like, these are godly men. These are guys who love the Lord, who, who believe in him and are and submitting their lives to him, but they're not perfect. And I really sat there and it kind of sank in and I remember just like sitting in the couch and just kind of being like frozen. 
And I just started weeping because the reality of the freedom of the gospel, it'll shake us and it'll change us and it'll move us. And at that point, we're willing to do whatever. It's like, you want my car? Take my car. You want my clothes? Take my clothes. You want whatever? Like, I don't need it because whatever I'm getting in Jesus is all that I really need. And that's all we actually ever really need, but we just kind of misalign our desires. And then before we know it, we're pursuing all these other things. So that's kind of my mountaintop experience. While you're thinking about um, yours, um, I want to draw this kind of like little graph here that I, I would kind of help to illustrate. So like for me, that was a really big mountaintop experience um, up there where you get clarity. You can kind of see everything. You have vision. You can see all around you. And it's, it's super helpful. But if you know as well as I do, being a Christ follower, you spend most of your time here in kind of the plains, in the desert, in the, the flatlands. Um, but we, we keep searching and hoping that we can live lives on the mountaintop because that experience is so powerful and raw to us. A good example is I take 70 to 80 students every summer up to Prescott in Arizona, and then I take high schoolers up to Durango in Colorado. And while we're up there, you know, they're all like arms for Jesus, worshiping like they've never worshiped before, giving their lives over to Jesus and all this, and all this stuff. And, and sometimes they do it every year, right? And um, checking it off the list. And, and I wrestle with like, why, are, why is this the case? Why, what, what is so good about Durango? I mean, it is actually literally a mountain. You're on the side of a mountain. Uh, but what is so good about this? And you really start to think about it. And what you've done is those desires that get misaligned, you've stripped all that stuff to desire and all you can really see is Jesus. And you're sitting in this super powerful experiential worship session and all, all you can think is Jesus is everything because there's nothing to distract or distort. It's kind of a glimpse of heaven. It really is. It's powerful. But we know that that only happens maybe once a year if you're lucky twice. So what do we do in the plains, Right? Some of us are in the season of like, we feel like we've been in the plains forever. We haven't had a spiritual experience like mountaintop experience in a long time. I feel like I haven't had one as powerful as that. I've had little ones. But some of us actually are even worse where we're in like this huge ditch and we're having a hard time even seeing and remembering the power of our mountaintop experience. Our spiritual journey is taking some, some shots and we're starting to grab onto things that we now can't grab onto because we're not on the mountain anymore. I love going up to the mountains. I, we live in the desert. I appreciate it, but I love the mountains. And it, when I get the chance on a weekend, I will go up north to northern Arizona, or I will even just go up to Mount Lemmon or the Chiricahuas or anywhere with trees and mountains and pines and water, I'm there. And it just fills my spirit. I'm a naturalist, love seeing God in nature and, and kind of working through that. And um, when I'm up there, I feel full, right? And then I know, though, every Saturday night when it comes around, I got to come back down to the, to the valley and I got to live my week here or several weeks or however many, right? So I know that I need to be intentional about bolstering my faith in those times, um, it's metaphorically speaking, spiritually speaking, okay? Because when I'm up in the mountain, it's, it's really energizing for me and I get rest. But I know when I'm back down here, I have a lot of expectations. I have a job. I have all these things I need to provide for and they hit me. So I know when I'm up there, I need to kind of, uh, fill my, my, my cup up, if you will, because I know I'm going to pour it out. But the thing is, I can't expect to just always live up in the mountains. There's a reason why God has me in this path. And most of us deal with this most of our life. The funny thing is, and I showed this last service, I realized that if you're always craving a mountaintop experience, if your mountaintop experience is always a mountain, it's still actually a plateau. It gets watered down. There's a reason why Jesus speaks to us in powerful ways. And actually, I would even argue the disciples had a lot of these. And you notice it still didn't really affect him much until after the resurrection and Holy Spirit comes in and gives him some help. So we're going to talk about today in Mark 9, open up your Bibles. We're going to talk about the transfiguration. Now, this is a really wordy pa um, um, passage. It's, 
It has a lot of symbolism. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay about 15 to 30,000 feet above it. I spent all the time in study in the past two weeks like crazy, and I've realized that a lot of it um, I can simplify for you guys. And so we're gonna, we're gonna go through it today. Um, I wanna give you some preface though. Preface is always important when you're reading a passage. And so last week, Pastor Ben talked a little bit about in Mark 8, um, it's gonna be up on the screen. Jesus asks, who do the people say that I am? He asks like the masses, the people who are coming around, all the healings and the followings and all these things, not really the Pharisees because he already knows what they think. What are the people, who do they think I am? And they reply, well, you're John the Baptist, you know, or, uh, or even Elijah or one of the other prophets, right? All these people are seeing Jesus's miracles and healings and all these things and they're still kind of missing the point on who he is. And you think, well, that's like, come on guys, it shouldn't be that hard, right? He's doing all these crazy awesome things. But if you look in the Old Testament, a lot of these prophets did some pretty miraculous things. And Elijah did some really awesome things for the Lord that were really powerful. So to them, they're just thinking, well, maybe he's the forerunner for the Messiah. And the reason why is because their expectation of faith and of freedom and of Jesus was going to be one that overthrew Rome, that came in and just knocked down Rome and then they would truly have freedom. And so they're thinking of him as Elijah because he's not really like getting aggressive. He's not like get, pulling up a sword and start stabbing people, okay? Because at this time, this is a fun little history fact, but before Jesus came, there was about a dozen or so insurrectionists who basically tried to overthrow Rome um, in the name of either religion or some other thing. And they got a pretty good following, but every time they got executed <laughs> by Rome, because it's Rome. But they were hoping, okay, well then he's gonna look like these guys, but just more powerful and he's gonna win. So all their expectations here are kind of missing it. And so all the people, they, like I said, they don't know. And then he asked Peter, well, Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, for once in his life, gets the answer right. He says, well, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. And we're like, yes, Peter, finally. We've been here in this book for how many months and you just keep missing it. Finally gets it right. But then a few verses later, what does he do? Jesus says, hey, I gotta die. It's part of the um, kind of the prophecy and, and uh, needs to happen. And Peter takes him aside and he's like, Jesus, come on, man. Like, you can't die. If you die, I'm like, what's the point of all this? Like, how is Rome supposed to be defeated if you die? And then Jesus says, my, one of my favorite lines, he says, get behind me, Satan. I love saying that. It's so great. It's a fun line to say. And he, he just rebukes Peter and now Peter's like, great. Like he, he proclaims he's a Christ, but he still didn't get it. There's a lot of people in our world and even here today that you proclaim Jesus but you don't actually know what that means. And you don't actually believe in him as your Lord. You love the savior part. You love the not burning in hell forever part, but you really don't understand what it means when Jesus is Lord, when God himself is sovereign and holy. We love the God is love part, but we don't like the fruit of some of that because love can be a difficult act. And we don't love the idea necessarily that God is also just. And so we distort these things. So in Malachi 4, this is before we get to this, this is the last section in the Old Testament. And then I kid you not, next page is Matthew 1. This is what they leave them with. He says, look, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. He will encourage fathers and their children to return to me so that I will not come and strike the earth with judgment. So when we read in here, like, oh, they think maybe he's Elijah. Well, they have good reason. They've kind of have this defense in Malachi of something is coming, whether it's now or not, this could be it. So let's see what happens here. Let's start uh, in chapter nine, okay, verse two. It says, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, so his three closest disciples, and he led them alone up a high mountain privately. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiantly white, more so than any launderer in the world could bleach them. 
Now really quick, launder is not like money launder. It's like, like laundry mad person. Like basically what Mark is saying is like, look, his clothes were so white, I can't even describe it. He's just like this glowing white. And the transfiguration is a really difficult thing to figure out the actual act of it. Um, tons of commentators give you all these different symbolisms and views and all this stuff. But I just want to diffuse it down to just one kind of main point, And it's this. It's, the transfiguration is about the holiness of God. It's about the, the power and the awe of God and what our response should be. Because when Moses saw the backside of God, his face was glowing for days because it was just like the most intense light ever. His face was glowing. Jesus is kind of, is representing this power through the transfiguration. So he's this glowing being. He's so white, even whiter than any, any clothes you could ever see white. And then we keep going um, in verse four. All of a sudden then, Elijah appeared before them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. So now the disciples are looking, Jesus is all white and then boom, Moses and Elijah appear out of nowhere. If you read the similar account, in uh, Luke, in one of the other Gospels, in verse um, 31, it'll, in chapter 9, verse 31, it talks about how they were talking about Jesus' death. So they're conversing about his impending death that's going to happen. And the disciples are watching all of this, and they clearly recognize Moses and Elijah because Mark is recording this from Peter's perspective, who was there. So they recognize Moses and Elijah. And you're probably wondering, well, that's kind of random. Like, Moses and Elijah, why didn't they bring John the Baptist back? Or... I don't know, like David, Davidic covenant. He was a big deal. So Moses was the key of the law. He was the writer of the law. Everything they followed, civil law, um, ceremonial law, sacrifices, all that was based on what Moses had given them in the Levitical law in the Old Testament. And then Elijah was kind of the forerunner prophet of really establishing things and understanding that there, there needs to be more. There needs to be a savior. And so uh, Elijah did some really great things and both of these are here kind of at different points of the Bible. And then Jesus is here with the three of them. Now, I can't imagine seeing this and being like, what is going on? And so we, re we get to read Peter's reaction, which is probably, probably my favorite. In verse five, so Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Verse six says, for they were afraid and he did not know what to say. That's a, that's, a, that's a clever way of saying he shouldn't have said anything. Anybody ever get foot in the mouth? Anybody have that? I'm really bad at that. One of the things I'm really, I'm really gifted at is like true speaking and being blunt and bold. But the bad side of that and the weakness of that is sometimes it can be very insensitive. If it's not genuine and loving. And um, I, I realize that and it's something I'm always trying to work on. In fact, sometimes I'll even type out a text message and I'll like read it or have someone else read it. And then I just like erase it and then I rewrite it, right? I'm like, all right, more, more sensitivity. Uh, delete it, rewrite it again, more sensitivity. By the time my wife gets it, it's probably the fourth draft. And she's still like, that was offensive. And I'm like, ah, it's just like, it's just, you know, it's the way that I'm wiring them and I'm trying to work on it. And, and I totally get Peter. I'm like, all right, here's a situation where just early you got rebuked by Jesus, got called Satan. Now let's redeem ourselves. Let's build some shelters. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but when I read it, I'm like, really like build shelters? Like, why didn't he like do something like, I don't know, like build a cool like monument or something like shelters? It's just so random. But there's three things we need to learn about this little passage right here in verse five and six. The first one is they were afraid. And if you look, these are all the different versions of this verse. We got frightened, terrified, 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 stunned, in great fear, greatly afraid, terrified. My favorite one, King James, sore afraid. I was sore afraid of that haunted house. 
Now, you might be wondering, like, that's kind of a weird word to describe what you would see. Like, if I was there, personally, and I saw this, I would just be like, yeah. Like, I, I would not be like, oh, my gosh. Like, when I go to a haunted house, I'm like, and a clown tries to grab my foot, then I'm like, oh, my gosh, right? I'm, I'm terrified. But, like, you wouldn't compare that to Jesus, I wouldn't think, right? But the truth is that, well, I haven't been, I haven't been in the transfiguration, and so... But when you read all these instances of people encountering God truly in the Bible, it, your only response is this kind of awe and frightenment. Because what it is, is it's a fear in God. Now, I'm not talking like I'm afraid of God, like a haunted house. I'm talking about in the Old Testament when people would say, you're a God-fearing man, or those people fear the Lord. What it means is not a fear of like, I'm afraid of you, but it's an understanding of the power and the awe of who God is in your life. So when you fear the Lord, you're recognizing like, whoa, like you are God, you are holy, you are sovereign. So then being terrified is, is more of a way of saying like, whoa, Okay? And then the two disciples are like, whoa. And Peter's like, I'm going to build some shelters. You know? And you're like, what are you doing, Peter? So they're afraid. The second one is Peter wanted to build shelters, right? He wanted to prolong this surreal experience. Everything's awesome. And you're like, this is great. I can't tell you how many times, in, even in middle school camp, we'll be at camp and a kid will come up to me and he'll be like, Trey, this is so awesome. We should go to camp six times a year. And then I'll, I'll always believe in Jesus and I'll always be on this high and I'll have all these mountaintops and my life will be great. And you're like, well, of course you do. Like you just gave your hands to Jesus and you're jumping and dancing and everything's all great and dandy. And we took your cell phone and you don't have any distractions. But in some ways, like I resonate because this mountaintop experience that I had was powerful in my life. And I pray that I can keep reliving moments like that because I think that I need that to be able to continue to love God. Because in those moments, we get a glimpse of God as his transfiguration of his holiness and nothing else matters. And so it's right for us to want those moments. It's right for us to be in a season of this for maybe three years and things are really becoming hard and you're starting to fall and you can't even remember those moments that became so powerful to you. And you're just praying, Lord, just give me another mountaintop. Come on, give me something. Give me a writing on the wall. Give me something. So Peter's like, I'm gonna build shelters. I'm gonna prolong this experience instead of just stepping back and just basking in the, in the glory of God seeing who Jesus internally to the outward truly is in his holiness. And that even itself, I don't even know how to explain that. It's just, that's what, we all, that's what we're in awe about. The third last one is that Peter just earlier proclaimed Jesus as the Christ. A lot of people do that. A lot of say, I believe in God. I believe in a God. I believe in Jesus. He died for my sins. I don't really care a lick about following what he says, but I know he died for me. And a lot of people wouldn't even say that, but they live their lives like that. You know people that abuse the grace of Jesus because they're not willing to also submit their life to him. Because when you, when, you, when you give over yourself to Jesus, you die. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, when you give yourself over to discipleship, you die. You bid yourself to come and die. And you give everything away. And most people like the idea of pulling the Savior in for themselves and holding on to it and not actually revealing and giving all of themselves to the Lord. And so Peter was kind of guilty of this because he proclaimed, well, you're the Christ. You're, you're the coming Messiah. You're saving all of us. But yet I'm going to build three shelters for the three of you because you're all equal in my mind. You all have these parts to play and you're all equal. 
But the whole point of this transfiguration is to show that the glory of God is remarkable, that he is above no one else. He is God. And so Jesus is elevated. And and my favorite part is now we get to see the response of God. I think God's like, oh man, Peter. He doesn't even address Peter, but uh, he he gets to say in verse seven, he says, then a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came from the cloud. He says, this is my one dear son. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus. Man, like, the, the only other time you see something like this is whenever Jesus gets baptized and the heavens open up and God's like, this is my son with who I am well pleased. When the Lord gets to speak on behalf of who Jesus really is, we gotta take a moment and listen. He even said, listen to us, so we have to listen. He's like, look, listen, Peter. Stop building forts and Listen. Okay, like this is my son and he's, he's radiating his holiness right now. He is so much greater and better. Moses had a role. Elijah had a role. David had a role. Noah had a role. All these, all these Bible characters had a role, but Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. And so that's why in verse nine, they disappear. It's kind of symbolically showing like Jesus is Lord. A lot of times we don't have a Moses and Elijah physically in our lives, but we have things that distort uh, Jesus being the Lord of our full lives. It's maybe money. It's maybe like just doing things. Like maybe we serve a church, but our heart is just like way off. We're like, well, all these other people do stuff. So I'll do stuff and they look like they love Jesus. So maybe I'll do stuff. And ultimately then I'll love Jesus by doing things. Or Jesus will love me by me doing things. A lot of us are a lot more concerned about what Jesus thinks of our works than what he thinks of us. And so when you're, when you're looking at this and you think about it, like that we do have Moses and Elijah's in our life that we're putting on a pedestal just as high, if not higher than Jesus. And he's like, look, move those away. The last few verses are them um, descending down the hill, which is kind of a fun little part. Verse nine, it says, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the son of man had risen from the dead. Sometimes Jesus will do this. I don't like it because I'm like, that's weird. Like, why is he like wanting to hide things? He shouldn't want to do that, right? If you have a truth, you want to speak it. And the whole reason for this is because this was such a powerful event that he's basically saying, look, like the best time to be able to release a power like this is after people are already seeing the capability of my power that I can resurrect. And so that's why he kind of says this is like, wait until after I resurrect. Now they didn't really understand this because in verse 10, it says, they kept this statement to themselves. And they discussed what this rising from the dead might mean. Verse 11, and they, they then asked him, well, do the experts, why do the experts in the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does indeed come first and restores all things. And why is it written that the son of man must suffer many things and be despised? He's like, well, you should know I should have to die. But in verse 13, I tell you that Elijah has certainly come and they did to him whatever they wanted, just as it is written about him. So he's basically like, all, they're all like, well, the Pharisees are saying Malachi 4, Elijah's gonna come and he hasn't come yet. So how are you really the Messiah? We're starting to process all this. If you're truly, the Lord is affirming that you are the Lord, that you're Jesus, that we should listen to you. Where's Elijah? And he's like, you missed him. He was John the Baptist. Other versions will actually say that. They'll spell it out for you, which is helpful. But I'll just give you the answer. So yeah, John the Baptist, repent. The kingdom is near. He's gathering fathers and children to see that the kingdom of God is at hand and they missed him. And obviously Herod killed him which is unfortunate, but he gets to tell this story. So the, a couple of things I want to point out about this story, because there's a lot going on. The number one thing is that this, this whole story is used as a representation for us to see Jesus revealing himself for the disciples' transformation journey. So in, the, in your brain, those mountaintop experiences that you have on your spiritual journey 
Okay, the disciples are on the same path, right? They're looking for these things that'll help them cling on to Jesus as Lord. <clears throat> the coolest thing about this instance is that we get to see that this actually worked, which is really cool. I love when there's some scriptures that tie into other ones and you get the evidence, and you put them together and you're like, yes. So if you go to 2 Peter, you don't have to, but 2 Peter, Peter writes two letters, 1 and 2 Peter, okay? And in 2 Peter chapter one, he's arguing the validity of the gospel and the power of the word of God. And he talks about, I was the transfiguration. And basically what he describes it as is he was an eyewitness of the grandeur of Jesus. I love that word, grandeur. Like no one uses that word, but it's like perfectly describing it, right? The grandeur of Jesus. Like that moment was pivotal to their transformation the rest of their lives. Even though they didn't necessarily know it right now, like when they come back, they connect all the dots. Maybe you had that moment where you're like, this all makes sense now. I totally understand why I lost my job. I totally understand why I faced significant hardship. I totally understand why my marriage is so rough right now. Because when it clicks, then instead of being a valley, it's a mountaintop. Because you see Jesus in those moments. And it's powerful. It changes us. It truly changes us. The other thing we notice is when they're coming down the mountain, they have more questions than when they were coming up. I meet a lot of people all the time. I like to talk about like, hey, if they're a non-believer, I love to talk about what they're wrestling with. I love to talk about, hey, like, what's your view of the church? How has Jesus affected your life? Like, what are, what are some areas? Why are you struggling? And they always have, well, Trey, I got some questions and I don't get the right answers. I have some questions and the answers just aren't satisfying me. They're not helping me be content. I don't feel good about it. In fact, last week in my grad school class, our discussion was um, talking about why God lets bad things happen to good people, to people in general, you know? And we, we wrestle with that, right? Everybody always asks that question. You know, we, we started talking about Hitler and the Holocaust and why all that happened and wrestling through the tension of that, mo that, that, uh, that event. And, and you have all these questions, right? And, and I don't know if you felt as a Christ follower and you know someone's throwing ammo at you. They're like, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And you're like, great answer, great answer, great answer. And at the end of it, they're like, yeah, I don't know. I still just don't feel good about it. And it's aggravating because they think they need to have all their questions fully answered and their, their in, intuition shifted before they can really believe in who Jesus is. But when we look at this story, they didn't know anything about the Trinity. They didn't have any of Paul's letters. It was like, we see Jesus for who he is. And then from this moment on in all of the gospels, they never once questioned his messiahship anymore. Sure, they asked questions about what's going on, but they never questioned it anymore. This was the moment where it became real to them. Some people need more steps than others and others are on the cusp right there. And I just wanna tell you that you don't have to have all the questions answered. I'll even argue it because in college, I took my first theology class as a sophomore and I was so excited because I was like, I'm gonna get to answer all these tough questions they don't answer in Sunday school, you know? And I'm gonna be able to wrestle through some things. And I came into the room and my professor got his PhD in Scotland. He was a brilliant man. And uh, to the point where like when he's teaching, you're kind of just like, stay, you can't do anything else because you just gotta focus, you know? All of his words were so intentional. But I remember the first time getting there, he, uh, he comes in and he says, he says, hey guys, I bet you're excited to learn a lot about, about God and, and answer a lot of your questions. And we're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And all my, my ministry buddies were there and we were excited to have dialogue. And, and he's like, well, I just want to let you know that you're going to leave this room at the end of the semester with a lot more questions than you came in with. <laughs> and I was like, what is going on? Who is this guy? He's sort of, he must be new age. He's not giving me the answers. Sure enough, I write a view on the four atonements of Jesus. I write about the fallen nature of man in Genesis. I write all this stuff about baptism. And I get to the end of the class and I'm just like, I need to take nine more classes now. 
on each, you know, it, it's, a, it's a fire hydrant of understanding because what we do is we take this box and we just squeeze Jesus in it and he's like, no. And then he bursts it. We're like, all right, well, I'll get a bigger box. And you get a bigger box and you squeeze him in. And he's like, no. And then you get a huge box until you realize God is not to be put in a box. His, his saving attributes, the savior is definitely Jesus. God is love. But he's also just and he's also sovereign and he's also holy to the point of utter reverence in our lives because we have no way to respond like Peter, we're like, well, I'll just do these things, I guess. I don't know. Like, what else should I do? It's so counterintuitive to who we are. And that theology class made me realize that. It's okay to wrestle. It's okay to have questions. I think a lot of times, instead of wrestling, we just try to assign who we think Jesus is. We're like, well, I feel like Jesus would be like this. And so I'm going to feel like that. And then I'm going to read scripture and I'm going to filter it through that lens. Or, well, I think Jesus would never say something like that to that person. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach it this way. And, and we just try to put him in a box. We don't read what he actually, who he actually is. The transfiguration is an opportunity for us to see not only that he's a savior, not only that he's a wise teacher, a healer, but that he is holy and he is Lord of us and the earth. I mean, that is a bold thing to think about when you are Lord over something. We treat him like this nice pacifist guy who wasn't very brutal or maybe said witty comments, but like being Lord over the earth. I'm not gonna get into Revelation, but we know there's battles like, and he, he is in that battle. Like he is Lord. So that kind of idea, I think we have to realize in this passage. And then the last, the last kind of two things that I, I see in this passage is a lot of us just rush to do things. Like I said earlier, we have a lot easier time doing things to quantify where we're at spiritually than just being and taking time to reflect on the, on the reverence that God deserves. I have a buddy who I've been friends with since I was three. He lives across the street still to this day. When I go home for Christmas, we're gonna hang out. He was raised Catholic. I was raised Protestant, uh, Protestant evangelical. And, and we kind of had a lot of differences. And um, he was never like really into his faith. But in high school, we started getting these conversations, these discussions. I got really excited, really encouraged. I'd come back from college, we'd have conversations. And I got to the point where uh, it came to this and he just said, you know what, Trey, I get it. I just, I don't want to give up the things I have. He like understood the weight of it, but he just couldn't let go. And so many of us play that, that fakeness. We show up and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we're like, ah, I'm going to hold on to this in my back pocket. And when we truly see not just the saving attribute of Jesus, but the lordship over our lives, like Bonhoeffer, we die. That's not a very attractive thing. But when you're on your mountaintop, it doesn't, you're like, of course, you have my phone. I don't even have it right now, right? I can't be like, I don't need it anymore. Those mountaintop experiences shape our faith so that when we're in the valley, we should be able to transition. It's the saddest thing to know that he is like that. And he would never say that. He would never say, I don't want to let go of these things, but I can tell. I can tell that there's money has got a grasp on him that relationships and partying and girls have a grasp on him and that it's just too fun for him. And so you just pray like, Lord, reveal yourself to him. And, and he doesn't need all these questions answered. He just needs an encounter with you through people, through relationship, through hardship, whatever it may be. So I wanna close with um, an application. And it's funny because as a preacher, you're always taught like you gotta have an application, hopefully three points, right? So you can remember ABC. Well, this passage doesn't actually elicit an application because the whole point of it is to see who God is, okay? And then respond to that in on reverence, like the disciples there. We're not supposed to do anything. If we do, we're like Peter and that's a bad, no, no. And so Corey's gonna play us a song about the transfiguration. And what I really want us to do
today is just to sit and to process what that means in our life. Because a lot of us, being, Jesus being Lord is actually a really new concept to us. We came to church on the saving idea and now we realize, oh, I gotta give up some stuff. This is worth it, but it's hard. What do I need to give up? Maybe some of us have already given up stuff and we need to reevaluate. What are we sinking back into? We always are loving and worshiping something. It's just we get, re, we get disaligned. So take this as a moment to realign your loves in terms of who Jesus is in your life as Lord and as Savior. And if you want to respond, there'll be an opportunity where Corey will kind of hit some choruses and he'll say something. You're welcome to stand and you can sing. But I ask that you would only worship and sing out of a reverence for who God is, not just because everybody else is doing it and not just because we're singing. I want to put this quote up here. This will give you a good idea. This is one of my favorite theologians and pastors, A.W. Tozer. He says, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored or turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Did you know that in heaven, we're gonna be worshiping for eternity? Sometimes I come in on a Sunday and I'm like, oh, I don't like this song. I don't wanna sing it. I don't wanna sing it, right? You feel that. And you're like, I hope heaven doesn't have this song on repeat because I, I don't wanna be a part of it. But the thing is, when you see Jesus at his bare bones, when you're in the glory of God and it shines on your face, when you can handle it as a soul being with God in heaven, the only response you're gonna have is worship. So when we sing here, it's just a glimpse of heaven. It's all about your perspective on what it actually means to you. So as you're reflecting, remember that Jesus is Lord.